0: In episode 451 with Bruce Music, we are diving deep into all things love, soulmates, relationships and so much more. And for everything we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 451. Now let's dive in.
1: The following episode of the Melissa Ambrosini Show is ad-free and uninterrupted.
0: Of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode. Because even after eight years of marriage, I'm always wanting to be more in my relationship. And this episode gives you very practical tools and ways that you can take your love and intimacy to the next level. And for those of you that have never heard of Bruce, who is also known as the couple's whisperer, he has built a reputation as the guy relationship counselors refer their toughest clients to to help fix their troubled marriages. Now, unlike most traditional relationship advisors who advocate learning communication skills, he believes most people already know how to communicate but have never learned how to stay emotionally connected to each other which is so important. Emotional connection is everything in a relationship. And for Bruce, instead of trying to resolve a couple's relationship issues by talking them out, first he focuses on helping a couple connect like they did when they were falling in love. Only then does talking actually resolve anything. Bruce is also the founder of Love at First Fight, a company committed to helping couples reconnect and fix their relationship troubles. Now for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 448. Now let's dive into this incredibly important relationship and love episode with Bruce Muzik. Bruce, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: For breakfast? Now you're really asking. I had an omelette, actually. We have a little beach restaurant here. I live on the beach in the Dominican Republic, and there's this cute little restaurant on the beach, and they make the world's best omelette. So that's my morning work office.
0: I love it. I love it. Now, you help people improve their relationship. You fix their troubled marriages and you help them get on the same page. And you're also known as the couple's whisperer or the relationship repair expert. How did this all come about for you? Did you always know you were going to work in this field? How did this all unfold for you?
1: I think it started after my divorce. As you know, many great teachers, we often are the people who need to learn the most in the area that we teach. And that got me interested in relationships. And after about my second post-divorce relationship had failed, I kind of had an epiphany, Melissa. And the epiphany was, I think the common denominator in all my relationships is me. And that was like, ah, okay, okay. It's not (laughs) them, it's me. (laughs) I've been there in each one of them and none of them worked. (laughs) And that got me really interested in uh, relationships. And I started reading and learning. At the time, I was a seminar leader helping CEOs make more money in their businesses, and I was a bit disillusioned with that. And as I started learning about relationships, I was struck by the same thought repeatedly, which was, why weren't we taught this at school? If we'd been taught this at school my whole relational life would have probably gone very differently. And I started consuming every book I could find on relationships, flying all over the world to meet the authors of these books and learn from them. And I never really had any intention of doing this professionally, but I'm a teacher by nature. And as I started sharing everything I was learning with my friends, they would come back to me and say, hey, that thing you told me to do last night, Bruce, I tried it. And It actually really worked. You should think about doing this professionally. And after about the third person said that, a seed was planted and eventually my company Love at First Fight was born. I got qualified to work with couples twice and uh, the rest is history, as they say. So that's kind of how it started, out of necessity.
0: (laughs) Mm. That's often how a lot of things start, isn't it? Exactly. Now, you and I both believe that relationships are the fastest and most effective way to grow, heal and transform. Some people don't look at relationships that way. Why is it important that we see relationships as a way to grow?
1: Well, I think it's important because if you don't, you're going to stay stuck. And your relationships are an incredible opportunity to, as you just said, grow and heal. But they're also an equally potent opportunity to re-traumatize yourself and end up just getting worse. And the difference between getting worse and getting better is usually awareness. and. Once you start to understand the purpose of relationships is to grow you, is to challenge you, and you can see your partner as your greatest mirror on that journey, or your greatest coach, or the way I sometimes joke, you have hired a full-time therapist, a live-in therapist, somebody who knows you better than anybody else, who can see all your blind spots, and who is more than happy to tell you all about them. But for what most of us do is, I don't want to hear about it, right? When our partner gives us feedback about the things that they see, these enormous gifts they're giving us of self-awareness, we kind of fold our arms and we go like, nope, not going to happen. I'm not interested to hear what you have to say. That's criticism. Uh, Don't criticize me. That's not okay. And of course, we don't learn and we don't grow. We stay stuck, repeat the same mistakes over and over again until eventually we have enough and the relationship ends. I'm talking about my own life now. And uh, (laughs) so, yeah, that's often why we end up Broken up or divorced, repeating the same patterns over and over again is because we haven't seen our relationship as a context in which we can grow. So I'm glad you asked.
0: Mm. Many people listening to this may be in the situation where they feel like their relationship is over and that they don't have the tools to move through whatever they're experiencing. For someone listening who thinks that their relationship is over, where do they start? What advice do you have? what are some tools, how can we move through these challenging times? Because I know a lot of people as well think that the grass is greener on the other side, but the grass isn't greener. The grass is greener where you water it and relationships need watering and love and time and intention and energy. So for someone listening who may be at that point where they think that their marriage or relationship is over, what advice do you have for them?
1: Just let me clarify your question. Are you talking about someone who's broken up and their partner's gone? Or are you talking about someone who's still in a relationship and thinks it might be over, but maybe wants to save it?
0: Maybe wants to save it.
1: Okay, got it. Well, if you're still in your relationship, you're really lucky because you've got an opportunity to save it more often than not, actually. The reason why relationships often end is because we're not aware of what's happening. We don't know why the relationship's breaking down. We can't understand what pain our partner is in and what's having them behave the way that they're behaving. And we don't understand how to stop us from being in pain. So we, we assume there's nothing that can be done and we start thinking about leaving. And the truth of the matter is there's a lot that can be done. So the first thing that I get clients to do, if it's their partner that's the one that looks like they're about to leave, I'll, I'll get them to find out why. And usually they'll actually know why, because their partner spent the last three years complaining about the reasons that they're leaving. They just haven't been listening closely enough. Or they've been so focused on getting their own needs met, they've completely ignored what their partner was saying. So what we do is we'll find out what's going on for your partner and which needs have been going unmet for them that are so painful being unmet that this partner considering leaving. Then what we'll do is we'll go about making sure we become the world's greatest expert in meeting that need for their partner because people don't leave relationships where their needs are being met. When your needs are being met, why would you leave? Um, it's like, why would you sell a business that's producing you money every month? You know, you don't. The businesses you want to sell are the ones that you know are costing you money every month. And the relationships you want to leave are the ones that aren't fulfilling your needs. Now, one of the biggest cognitive mistakes I think we make, Melissa, is many of us when we're in relationship, we're so focused on our own needs, we're constantly going, me, 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 meet my need. Meet, why aren't you meeting my need? And, and the focus is not on how can I give you what you need? And so when you shift that mindset from me, 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 to we, 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 like how can I make sure that both of us are getting our needs met? And if I put my focus on generously, trying to make sure that you feel happy and your needs are being met, you're not going to want to go anywhere. You may not believe it's going to last for a while. That's the, the first objection that comes up. Well, okay, now that I'm leaving, you're changing. But I mean, you know, how do I know this is going to last? So you have to demonstrate that transformation has happened and that sometimes takes a little while. But that's often the easiest path to getting your partner back, discovering what it is that they need. And if you don't know, ask them. And if they're not willing to tell you because they're gone already, think back. What have they been complaining about for the last few months? And you'll find out very quickly. The second step is then to heal any what we call never again moments that have happened in the past. And a never again moment is a moment in your relationship where you had the thought or your partner had the thought, never again will I trust you with my heart? Never again will I open up to you because you betrayed me, because you hurt me, because, I'll just give you some examples from my clients' stories, because you weren't there when I was giving birth and you chose to go to a business meeting instead. Because we were at the dinner table with my family and, or with your family, and your father started picking on me and you didn't stand up for me. And then, you know, 15 years later, they still haven't had sex since that moment because the never again moment is a massive betrayal of trust. And fundamentally, at their core, relationships are, or love is a survival bond. From your amygdala's perspective, your partner is there to ensure your survival. And when they let you down, it's coded in your brain, in your amygdala, as a threat to your life. And so when you don't trust that the one person you've counted on, you've put all your eggs in one basket, and this person, is going to be there to protect you, it fundamentally betrays the implicit agreement of our relationship, which is thou shalt have my back. And when that agreement gets broken, trust gets eroded immediately, and nobody wants to have sex with somebody that they don't feel safe around and that they don't trust. And so that's why your sex life is the first thing to go when there's been a never again moment. So step two, when I'm working with a couple or when I'm working with somebody who wants to repair their relationship and they think it might be over is we need to heal the never again moment. And so I usually ask them, what happened in your relationship? What was the seismic earthquake kind of like activity that happened that after which nothing was ever the same again? And usually they can, in an instant, go. Oh, it was when this happened. I'm like, right. So that's what we've got to heal. Their next thing is, but I've said sorry a hundred times, and I have to let them know sorry isn't enough. You actually have to demonstrate remorse. There's a whole sequence of steps. All of this to say, it's possible and it can be healed. And I could go on for an hour, but I think that would bore you.
0: No, I love that. I love looking at the never again moment and also the needs. This is something that we learned very early on in our marriage. I think we read it in Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus about unmet needs. And I know for my husband and I, whenever there is like a misunderstanding, it's usually because someone feels like their needs aren't being met. And this doesn't just apply to your romantic relationship. I have a 16-year-old stepson and I have a 10-month-old baby. And so i I am often thinking, how can everyone's needs be met? So, how can my husband's needs get met? How can my 16 year old's needs get met? How can my baby's needs get met? And how can my needs get met? And so, everyone is happy and everyone feels like they are full. And I often have this conversation with my 16 year old. I say, okay, you want to do this. You have these needs. We have needs. How can we all get our needs met? And it's literally, as simple as sitting down practicing what i call crystal clear communication and having an open loving conversation about what do you need and what do i need and how can we both get them met it's very simple isn't it
1: no <laughs> i <laughs> mean okay, actually maybe simple yes easy no i think
0: yes simple yes yes but simple, easy, yes, not very easy,
1: easy no because especially when you have an insecure attachment style. So let me back up a bit and talk a little bit about probably the greatest theory of love that we have at the moment to work from. It's called attachment theory. And one of the premises of attachment theory is that love is a survival bond. And what I found beautiful about this is it de-romanticizes love. And you could it, it helps make sense of why we lose our freaking minds with our partner, because we act as if somebody's got a gun pointed to our head. But as far as our amygdala is concerned, somebody has got a gun pointed to our head because our life feels like it's at stake when our partner's not there for us. So in attachment theory, started out as the study of how children bond with their mother and later on developed into how adults bond with each other because they realized the exact same kind of bond that forms between mother and child forms between lovers. And it's a bond go ahead. You want to ask something? Uh,
0: I was just I was just gonna say. There is, correct me if I'm wrong, there's four different types of attachment styles. Is that correct?
1: That is in some models, but there's a whole bunch of different researchers, all of them who have their own models, and some of them have three attachment styles, some of them have six. I work with the six attachment style model just because it's more granular. But essentially, they all include what's known as securely attached. This is somebody who trusts that their partner will be there for them naturally. And they don't feel insecure generally in relationships. They tend to resolve conflict easily because this was demonstrated for them often by their parents. And they grow up feeling confident that their partner will be there for them, have their back. They feel comfortable leaning on their partner for help when they need to. They don't get caught up in, oh my God, we're being codependent. They also feel comfortable having their partner lean on them when they need to. And these people generally never find their way into any of my courses because they figure out their own relationship problems on their own. And these are securely attached people. It's approximately, more or less, somewhere between 45 and 50% of the population. The rest of us are blanketed into what's known as insecurely attachment styles. And there are five of them. I'll just quickly run over them in a second. But The general overview of Insecurely Attached is the opposite. We don't feel comfortable depending on others or having others depend on us. We don't trust that our partner will be there for us naturally, have our back, that we can relax and just know that everything is going to be okay. So what tends to happen is when we fight, one of us gets all worked up and tends to become demanding and chases, and the other one retreats, shuts down, and withdraws, kind of like a turtle, into their shell. This is the most common relationship dynamic. They call it the demand-withdraw pattern. And as the one partner I call a turtle withdraws, so the other partner, which I call the hailstorm, starts hailing more hail on top of their partner, getting more upset. And the more upset they get, the more scared the turtle gets, the more they retreat into their shell, the more they withdraw, and the more the hailstorm becomes uh, 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 loud and demanding. And round and round this couple go until doors slam, they end up screaming at each other, and they don't talk for three days afterwards. So those are two of the attachment styles that are the most common ones. They're known technically as anxious attachment and avoidant attachment. I call them the hailstorm and the turtle. The hailstorm is terrified of abandonment. They grew up in a family environment where mom sometimes was available to comfort them, to rock them, to soothe them, to take their pain away. And other times mom wasn't. And the child didn't know whether or not mom was gonna be there for them or whether or not mom was gonna leave them alone in pain. And this created this kind of hyper-vigilant where the child starts tracking, where is mom? Is she in the room, is she there? And is she responding to me? So the child will cry, and if mom doesn't respond, the child will scream. And these grow up into adults who are anxious in their relationships. They don't trust their partner will stay there in the relationship. They're hyper-vigilant, tracking their partner's location, and whether or not their partner responds to them in a timely manner. And they have the hardest time in relationships, and they often fall in love with turtles who grew up in a family environment where there was no comfort whatsoever. So mom and dad were working all day long, or they came from a a belief system where they kind of thought, well... You know, If you let babies cry, you just make them weak and dependent. Or if you comfort them, you make them weak and dependent. And if you let them cry, they'll eventually cry it out and they'll learn to self-soothe. We now know that's absolutely not the case, it causes trauma. And it turns these babies into what we call as adults, turtles. In the absence of mom and dad co-regulating their child, being able to take their child's pain away, because a young baby can't communicate help you know, my stomach's sore. They just can cry. And we, as parents, have to guess what the heck's going on. And we're the only people who can take their pain away from them. We pick them up, we soothe them, we rock them, we coo with them. And the child is regulated, calms down, feels better, and eventually smiling and playing again because we're available to soothe them. Now, when we grow up into adults, it's incorrectly believed that this should stop happening. And that if as adults, I take responsibility for soothing you. Somehow you and I are in this codependent relationship. But it turns out that as adults, we are far more easily co-regulated than we are self-regulated. But these poor turtles never learned how to co-regulate because they never had a parent who was there to help them regulate their feelings. So the only uh, way to get out of the pain that they're feeling as young children is to literally take some scissors, and cut the tie to their heart. They sever their emotions, basically. They numb themselves. So these turtles, as adults, when they get into relational distress, the first thing they do is they numb themselves. And suddenly, they're not feeling any pain. But of course, this triggers the hailstorm's fear of abandonment, because suddenly their turtle is no longer accessible to them, because they're numb, they're not even engaged. And it looks like they're fine. I mean, I've, I've seen turtles go from being raging mad to instantly numbing themselves, and the smile forms in their face. It's like they've just had a drug, but what's actually happening is that they're not feeling good. They're feeling relief. They're feeling nothing. They're numb. They don't feel good or bad. They feel numb. And that's what has them withdraw and often do to what untrained eyes looks like cruel things, like just walk out and leave their partner alone and abandon them feeling nothing because they've shut off their emotions. And these two are drawn to each other like opposite poles of a magnet and end up driving each other crazy in relationship. That's probably about 75% of my clients. They're hailstorms and turtles. There are three other attachment styles that come from childhood environments where there was more trauma. One, I call the chameleon. I'm not gonna go too deep into these. The chameleon's primary trait is their people pleasers. They had often a controlling mother or an aggressive or angry mother. And they learned the only way to calm her down and feel safe in the household was to basically appease her, to be whoever they thought mom wanted them to be. And so they surrender their own identity in favor of safety and pleasing their parent. And they grow up to be adults who change the color of their skin. That's why I call them a chameleon who kind of fit in and blend in with whoever they're dating. And suddenly they're the nicest person in the world. And that person thinks, wow, I think I've just met Mr. or Mrs. Perfect until they get tired, at which case they kind of go, I've had enough. Screw you. I'm no longer going to be this pleasing person anymore. I'm tired of having to appease you. I'm out of here. Goodbye. And they're out the door in a split second before the partner knows what's happened and doesn't understand why. That's a chameleon. Then if somebody's experienced what I call capital T trauma versus small T trauma, they've really had maybe some kind of abuse, whether they had a violent father who was alcoholic and beat them, or they were sexually abused, or they were abandoned or neglected. They will often grow up to be what's known, or what I call, a wolf or a sheep. And the wolf and the sheep archetype grew up being abused or neglected. And if the child was strong, often young little boys, The child learned they could fight back and they turned into what I call the wolf archetype. If the child was weak, more often little girls, they learned there's nothing I can do. You know, my dad's beating me. He's way bigger and stronger than me. I just have to take it. And so they surrender, kind of like follow like a herd of sheep kind of thing is where the sheep archetype name came from. And they surrender feeling like there's nothing I can do to get out of this difficult situation. And wolves and sheep often come together like opposite poles of a magnet and end up re-traumatizing each other. Wolves, their primary trait is control. They Their partners will often call them control freaks because that's how they learn to stay safe as children. So if you had an alcoholic parent and whenever they were drunk, they would come into your bedroom and they'd find some Lego pieces on the floor and go, why haven't you cleaned your room? And then whack you over the head. You would learn never to leave Lego on the floor. You would learn never to leave anything on the floor. Your room would have to be immaculate as a survival strategy to avoid being beaten by your drunk father. And these children grow up into adults who need to control everything in their relationship. Often their partner, their environment, the house, the kitchen, the car has to be perfect. Everything has to be perfect. The clothes have to be perfect. Because if it's not perfect, they're afraid at some unconscious level they're going to get beaten. And so it's a survival strategy to prevent uh, a parent from getting mad. And the sheep just rolls over and takes it. So often the sheep ends up in an abusive relationship being abused by the wolf. And this dynamic goes on and on. We've all heard about people stuck in abusive relationships who can't seem to leave them. And to those of us who haven't been traumatized, it seems like, what is wrong with you? Why don't you just get up, pack your bags, and freaking leave? Why do you stay? Clearly, he's a jerk. Like, what are you thinking? But for the sheep, that possibility doesn't exist. They don't believe that that's possible because as a child, they often were beaten, raped, hurt every single day, and they couldn't leave. They couldn't get up and leave because they were children. They were dependent on their parents. And they were put in this awful situation of having to love the people who were hurting them. And so these people have the hardest time of any in relationships. So if you're listening to me share this, I wonder if you've identified yourself in hailstorm, turtle, chameleon, wolf, or sheep. And if you have, I really want to urge you to read some information on attachment and get some help because you really can heal and have a happy relationship. And that is all that I do every single day of my life is help couples who are insecurely attached get along and learn how to navigate this insecure attachment and learn that it's actually not a curse because many gifts come from being insecurely attached, like being highly emotionally attuned is one of them. Anyway, I mean going for probably ten minutes flat right now, I will stop and take a breath and you can uh, <laughs> comment.
0: So awareness is obviously the first step in this, and then reading some information, getting some support. Do you feel like this is something that we can resolve within ourselves? Or do you feel like getting support is necessary?
1: According to the research, it's much much more difficult to try and heal your attachment style on your own if not impossible the best way to place to do it is in a relationship because these wounds were created in an attachment relationship your mother is an attachment figure your father is an attachment figure that attachment bond was where the wounds were formed they get healed in an attachment relationship where as far as your attachment system the part of your brain that's responsible for bonding is concerned your husband Melissa is your father. Can't tell the difference because it's the same kind of bond. So your husband has a unique opportunity to traumatize you again, like your father may have, or heal you in the ways your father couldn't. And I don't know anything about your father, but I'm just using that as a random example. And because of that attachment bond and because of the attachment system not knowing the difference between your parents, And your partner, your partner then can what do what we call reparenting each other. If your partner knows your inner landscape inside out and they understand your wounds, how your wounds were created and what is self to those wounds, what's going to heal those wounds, your partner can give you the things that your dad never could or your mom never could because for whatever reason, whether, you know, I'm sure your parents. All of our parents loved us, but they are human. So none of us are perfect and none of us are perfect parents. And none of us are going to give our, you know, meet our children's every single need. And so when your husband, Melissa, gives you those things you never got but most craved from your parents, eventually, over a matter of months, if you do this consciously, not years, over a matter of months, that wound heals and it stops being so raw. It stops being something that triggers you into anger or into fear or into an automatic reaction so quickly. Does that make sense?
0: hundred percent. I love this. And then I love that I can play that role for him as well.
1: Exactly. And what that requires is education. So you need to educate each other on your past, on your wounds, and that requires that you're aware of your wounds. And most of us aren't. So I have this metaphor that I call broken toes. And if you think of a relationship as a partner dance, like dancing salsa, two of you are dancing together on the dance floor, and you imagine imagine that your partner suddenly yells at you and says, "Ouch! You hurt me. Why did you hurt me? That's not okay." And they say, "What are you talking about? Like I, I don't know. I was just dancing with you." And you like forget about it. You carry on dancing, and eventually you feel this insanely painful sensation in your big toe, and you're like, "Ouch!" You hurt me again. What the F are you, you know? And they go, I don't know what you're talking about. You are crazy, man. Like I, I didn't hurt you at all. None of this makes sense until you understand that perhaps the person that's saying, ouch has a broken toe and they don't know that they have a broken toe. A broken toe is like an emotional hypersensitivity, an emotional wound, usually from our childhood that we carry with us into adulthood. And it defines our romantic relationships. And often we'll have two or three of them. So you imagine you're dancing, you've got two or three broken toes. Inevitably, your partner is going to brush their foot up against your toe. And if you don't know that your toe's broken, you're going to assume that they were the source of the pain. And you're going to go, ouch, you jerk. Why would you do that to me? What's wrong with you? Why do you hurt me? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what are you on about? Now imagine both partners have three broken toes, and neither partner knows that they have these three broken toes, nor that their partner has three broken toes as well. Can you imagine the recipe for disaster this is? Well, this is every romantic relationship on the planet. All of us have broken toes that we're not aware of. We may have seen patterns throughout life, but we're often not aware of them. So I'll give you an example of one of my broken toes is being wrongly accused. Okay, when I was uh, teenager, I got arrested and p- spent a night in jail for stealing a car that I was never stealing. It's a long story. I won't go into it, but I was thrown into the back of a police truck, put into jail. My parents didn't pick me up until midday the next day because they wanted to make me suffer. They wanted me to learn a lesson that you know, car theft wasn't okay, except i had never stolen the car. I just happened to be in the vicinity of a car that was being stolen, and the police assumed that I was the thief. So my parents wrongly accused me and wouldn't believe me that I hadn't stolen the car. And this was an enormous wound that was created by my attachment figures, my parents. And it was felt like a huge betrayal from the people who were supposed to look after me and have my back and care for me. And so in my adult romantic relationships, when I get even a whiff that my partner's wrongly accusing me, instantly I feel it coming on. I can feel anger. I can feel a protective uh, mechanism coming up, the walls coming up, and these are what I call broken toes and you know that your broken toe's really been stood on when two things happen: first is the emotional tone of the conversation you're having suddenly changes. You could be just talking about what to have for breakfast, and the minute your broken toe is stood on suddenly it like either rage comes up or it's complete icy cold, and suddenly the conversation changes like' it's, We're just talking about breakfast, and suddenly you're yelling at each other. The second way you know that you've had a broken toe stood on is that your reaction, well, at least as far as your partner's concerned, you may not think this, but your reaction is way out of proportion with what's actually happening. What's actually happening in reality is we're cooking breakfast, but I'm screaming, okay? I'm like, how the f*** could you do that? You know, like, that's how you know a broken toe has been stood on. So- What we first have to do is identify our broken toes. Most of us have at least two or three. Then we name them. We give each one a name. So I've got my abandonment broken toe. I've got my wrongly accused broken toe. And I've got a good couple of others. Then here's the kicker you teach your partner about your broken toe, and you teach them the names. So you have a vocabulary with which to talk about each of these wounds. And anything that you name moves from being something that's inside of you that you have no power of to something that's outside of you that you can see, touch, manipulate, and have power over. So the minute I have a wrongly accused broken toe, my wife knows exactly what's going on when I say, Babe, this is my wrongly accused, accused broken toe. She knows the history behind that, the world of what went on, spending a night in jail. It all makes sense to her. And instead of her thinking, geez, Bruce is being a real jerk right now. She goes, oh, okay. I understand. This is his childhood thing. It has nothing to do with me or what's going on right now. Okay. I can help him. And actually I know how to help him because he's taught me how to help him in these moments. Okay. And so I would my I've trained her to go, to give me a hug and say, babe, you've done nothing wrong. I believe you, okay? I trust you. And suddenly I'm like, oh, okay, good. Okay, that's better. And she'll hold me and give me a hug, and I'll feel better. After a while of her doing that, like if that happens for six months or so, I no longer doubt that whenever I have this experience, she's going to be there and help me. And I can learn to trust that this broken toe is not something to be afraid of. When I feel it coming up, I know I can go to her for help. I know she'll be available, engaged, responsive, there to help me. It stops being an issue for me. And so next time this happens, I'm like, eh, no big deal. It's fine. I'm over it now. And so my wife has actually helped me heal at least four or five really major traumas or wounds from me growing up. And they're no longer coming up in my relationship in a way that haunts me and haunts our relationship. And I couldn't have done it without her. And I've done the same for her, but it requires educating each other and understanding how to navigate and find out your broken toes. And I've got processes for all of the stuff that we do in the courses that I run.
0: I love this so much. And truly, I am going to do this with my husband. I am going to invite him to uncover his broken toes. I will do the same. But as you were talking, there is a level of vulnerability that is required to share these broken toes. Have you found that stop a lot of people from moving forward?
1: Yes, it definitely does if you don't create safe connection first. So in a... Backing up just a second, one of the big premises of all the work I do can be summed up in four words. And those four words are connect first, communicate later. What most of us do is we communicate first, hope that we'll feel connected afterwards. And that doesn't work. The reason why our communication fails is because we don't feel safe when we're communicating. And when we don't feel safe, our amygdala comes online, our fight-or-flight system, And then we begin to relate to our partner as if they're the enemy. And we speak to enemies like this with arms folded, with fists out, with a glare in our eye and an aggressive tone of voice to protect ourselves from the enemy. And that's what triggers our partner. And this is when conversations just erupt. So in order to risk being that vulnerable, you've got to connect first. So for the entire first week of working with any couple, all I do is give them connection assignments. I give them four assignments to every day do that help reestablish a sense of safety. I'll give you an example of one of the assignments. I get them to write an appreciation journal. So I get them to write in a little book that they keep on top of the toilet seat with a pen inside of it. Once a day, one thing that they appreciate or admire about their partner, and their partner does the same thing. And after a couple of weeks, this book is filled with beautiful things. And it just kind of recharges the connection safety battery in the relationship to the point where they can actually have a conversation and, and sustain it and tolerate the little disconnections that always happen in conversations because they're so safely connected. So in order to be this vulnerable to talk about your raw spots, you've got to trust your partner will be there for you. And it really helps if they reciprocate and both of you are opening up at the same time. So I don't ever do this until I've spent at least a month. Like, I think it's only in the end of week four. My I have a seven-week online course that I take couples through. Only at the end of week four, having been together a month, that I even talk to them about these broken toes because they're not ready to go there. First, we have to establish safe connection. That's the entire first week. The second week, we have to learn how to listen to each other first and and learn how to to have our partner feel heard. The entire third week is how do we communicate safely when we speak? How do we not scare the crap out of our partner and threaten them without realizing that we're threatening them, which is what most of us are doing when we're fighting? And then only in week four do we start looking at broken toes and patterns of conflict because up until that point, most of us are not skilled enough to be able to have these conversations without standing on our partner's broken toes. And if we do stand them, we don't know how to soothe them and comfort them. So yeah, becoming very aware I need to stop talking and let you ask questions because I'm like a steam train. Once you're going to get me started, it's hard to stop me.
0: (laughs) No, this is so helpful. And I'm so excited to do this with my husband. I really am. I'm so excited to sit and do this and take our relationship to the next level. I just think it's such a beautiful thing to do. And we all want deeper relationships, not just with our partner, but with others as well. We all want deeper, more connected, loving relationships. And I love that you have that saying, connect first and communicate later. In the parenting world, I say connection before correction. So before we say, don't do that, or maybe don't put that in your mouth or whatever it is, you want to connect with your child first and then correct them. You know, say, well, maybe we don't touch that or, you know, so that's one of my parenting little mantras. So I love that you have connect first and communicate later because I know for my husband and I, that is absolutely what has to happen in order for us to move through something. Anytime we try and communicate before connection, it's just like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't flow. And you know, I also love that you say that anything that is not love is a misunderstanding. So how can we turn that ship around once we realize that there's been a misunderstanding? What is the first step?
1: Well, I think the first step is realizing that there's been a misunderstanding, because for most of us, we don't. We think, no, it's your fault. You started this. You fix it. And they're going, no, no, it's your fault. You started this. You fix it. And then both of you are kind of in a Mexican standoff, neither of you willing to go first. So the first step is realizing, okay, let's assume that you know this was a misunderstanding. Let's assume positive intention and positive regard on both of our parts. And then I take them through a seven step process to figure out what the misunderstanding is. And this is a seven step process that comes from Dr. Sue Johnson, who is a researcher in Ottawa University in Canada. She developed emotionally focused therapy, which is the couples therapy with the highest success rate. And she's got this fantastic recurring conflict kind of cheat sheet. And step one is to call out the name of your pattern. So what I mean by pattern is we were talking earlier about a relationship being kind of a partner dance, all of us have different kind of dances. Some of us dance salsa. Some of us dance tango. Some of us dance what some of my couples call the car bomb. Some of us dance the Tom and Jerry. Depending on whatever you name your dance, I get my couples to name a pattern of conflict. So once you have identified your pattern of conflict, and we all have several, there are three primary ones. Just I'll just share them just in case your listeners might relate to some of them. The first one, Sue Johnson calls the protest polka. And the protest polka is a blame game. Both of you are blaming each other, going, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And you just go round and round in this dance called the protest polka. The second one she calls the freeze and flee. And the freeze and flee is when both partners shut down and numb. And the third one is an attack-withdraw dance that we spoke about earlier. And I've just gone completely blank on the name. So forgive me, it'll come to me like the minute we hang up this call, I'm sure. But the idea is one dance, one of the most common patterns, we both blaming each other. The other one is one person's attacking, the other one's withdrawing. And the other third one is when both partners withdraw. And that's the most dangerous one because that's when your relationship is about to end because there's nobody left in the dance floor anymore. So, what we get couples to do is we get them to name these dances, to identify the pattern that they're stuck in, name them. So, I had a couple who always used to fight in the car and they would call their fight the car bomb. And the minute you notice the disconnection of the fight happening, you call out the name of the dance to interrupt the pattern. So, now when they're driving in the car and they end up having a little bickering session, the first person to realize goes car bomb and they both stop because They know what that means. They know what happens if they let the car bomb continue. An explosion in the car, okay? And they don't want that anymore. So it interrupts the pattern. That's step one. But the only way you can interrupt a pattern is by having first identified your pattern and named it. Then what we'll do is I'll have a couple talk about what actually happened in three or four scenes, just like a movie has a scene. uh, Like maybe, so in this car bomb couple, for example, she is night blind he's driving home at night she can't see anything outside and it scares her it makes her anxious so she turns on the gps and she stares at the gps screen so she can kind of get a sense of where she's going because it comforts her okay he grew up in a childhood environment where his dad called him stupid all the time and he has this broken toe called i'm stupid okay so they're driving home one night from the movies it's like they're five kilometers or five miles away from the house Not far of course he knows the way home she turns on the gps he assumes mm-hmm. that she's turned it on because she th- thinks that he doesn't know the way home it triggers his i'm stupid broken toe he gets all upset and aggressively turns it off okay she's like what the hell she has a broken do- toe called my needs are not important okay her need to look at the gps he knew about it he turns off the GPS. This triggers her broken toe. He stands on her broken toe called, my needs are important. So she gets all upset, turns it back on, and says, stop being a jerk, or whatever she says to him. He reacts, and then suddenly in the middle of it, she realizes what's happening, and she goes, car bomb! And they stop. And both of them realize, oh, wow. And he looks at her and he says, thank you. This could have gone so much worse. Then they go through each scene, like, so he says, it all started when you turned on the GPS, and I immediately felt this kind of anger in my body, and so I turned it off. And she said, okay, that's scene one. In scene two, I turn it back on, you know, in spite of you turning it off, and I call you a name and say, don't be such a jerk. And he goes, yeah, I think it's probably scene two. And he says, in scene three, I think what happened is we just started yelling at each other, and then you called out a car bomb. Do, you think, do we agree on that? And the two of them nod, they agree on it. They've got three scenes now. Then what they do is they fill in the emotional colors, and they talk about their feelings from two different perspectives, from the perspective of how they were feeling in each scene and how what they did made their partner feel. So she starts off, I turned on the GPS because I was feeling anxious, and I turned the GPS, and I imagine that stood on your broken toe of I'm stupid and made you feel angry. Is that what you're feeling? He goes, yeah, that's what I was feeling. I was feeling angry. So then now he switches. He talks about scene ways. So I turned it off again, kind of defiantly. And I imagine that must have made you feel hurt because it stood on your broken toe called my needs are not important. She goes, ah, not so much hurt. I think I was I was scared. I was scared that we were going to get into conflict. He said, Oh, okay. You were scared. Okay, I didn't realize. Oh, that explains probably why you were so reactive. Okay, so she says, okay, well, then in scene uh, two, I turn it back on again and defiantly call you a name, which I imagine probably made you feel hurt. He goes, yeah, it did hurt, but all I ever showed you was anger. I didn't want to be that vulnerable with you. And they go backwards and forth until the end. They realize that neither of them were trying to hurt the other, that both of them are innocent, and both of them were just trying to protect themselves from what they perceived was a threat that in reality didn't actually exist. It was all a big misunderstanding. And by the time they've gone back and forth through each scene of the fight and filled in their emotional, the emotional content of the fight, they can understand what went on for their partner. And when they see and feel and relate to what went on for their partner, they can no longer be mad at their partner because they can see their partner is innocent. They're like, oh, you would just trying to protect yourself because you felt anxious driving at night in the car because you're night blind okay it wasn't about me being you don't think i'm stupid you know that i know the the way home oh okay i love you again and that's it that's what it takes and so i teach this process to couples it can take two to three minutes and you can pretty much defuse any dance any pattern of conflict that you know the name of Um, and if you don't know the name of it i have another process to help you figure those out too
0: Oh, I love that. Can you share that process with us now or is it too long?
1: It takes probably about, I would think, half an hour and you're going to go back and think about your fights. And I give you written exercises to do. You're going to write out every step of the way, what happened in the last big blowout fight you had, what your moves are, what you felt so it takes a little bit of while and you'll want to be alone. But if you want to learn how to do some of this, I've got an entire program called the Love it First Fight Coaching Program. It's super affordable. It takes seven weeks and I take people through the program and these different steps. And it probably takes three or four hours to get the basis down of naming your dances and identifying three dancers, naming three raw spots and identifying them, teaching those raw spots to your partner, uh, raw spots, sorry, raw spots are broken toes, your three broken toes and then learning your partner's three broken toes and memorizing their names, then what you have to do next is each broken toe has a magic medicine. It's like what I call a soothing mantra. It's a specific set of words and actions that you take that soothe this broken toe for your partner. So, for example, when I was talking earlier about my broken toe of being wrongly accused, when my wife says to me, honey, I believe you. You've done nothing wrong. I'm on your side. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Okay, it soothes me. I, those are the words I need to hear. When my abandonment raw spot is being, oh, a broken toe is being stood on, she says to me, honey, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. And I instantly, oh, thank goodness. And we can. Re- this is called co-regulation. Very di- different from codependence, and it's what mothers do with their babies, and it's what adults need to start doing with themselves in their relationships: is helping soothe each other. And once you know how to soothe each broken toe, you have an entire toolbox or vocabulary with which you can talk about and understand what's going on. And suddenly, it's as if you were blind your entire life and you've just been given glasses for the first time. Suddenly, you can see all the patterns in your relationship, and you can't unsee them ever again. They're there, and and it's like, oh, I see what's happening. Okay, you were saying earlier, the first step to change is awareness, right? And that's exactly it. Once you're aware of the pattern, it no longer has you. You have it. And because you have it, it's something you can manipulate. It's something you can control. It's something you can work with and heal.
0: Imagine if this was taught in school.
1: Exactly, and that's why I do what I do that was what inspired me. Yeah.
0: Honestly, honestly, it's just essential. I feel like everything that you've shared in all of your work needs to be in a book and it needs to be in the school curriculum. And until that happens, let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum besides your future book, what is one book that you would choose? And it actually doesn't have to be on relationships. It could be on any topic, but just one book that you think every single high school student needs to read.
1: It's really hard to choose one, but I'll choose the one. It's not necessarily my favorite book, but it's the one book that is incredibly practical. It's filled with tools and it's called Getting the, one, the Love You Want." And Keeping the Love You Find by Dr. Harville Hendricks and his wife, Dr. Helen Hunt. And they're two extraordinary relationship researchers that have been fundamental in shaping how we now treat marriages and help couples. Um, There are many more couples researchers who've written extraordinary books too. That one just has some really practical tools that if you read that book, you'll be tooled up to be able to communicate effectively for the rest of your life with anybody, especially work colleagues, children, family. I mean, it it applies anywhere. And I don't think there's a more important skill to have than the skill of being able to not necessarily communicate, but make somebody else feel heard. I think it's a fundamental need we all have is to feel heard. And when we leave others feeling heard, they want to spend time with us. They want to employ us. They want to date us. They want to help us. They want to whatever. And life gets a lot easier.
0: Absolutely, it's a life skill that's going to benefit every area of your life.
1: Yeah, agreed. I'm curious, what, what would your book be?
0: Oh, well, I have been asked this a few times before on the podcast because I ask this question to every guest. One of, well, besides my books, I think they should be in there, but one of the most pivotal books in my journey was Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. I love that. And. I've had him on the podcast and that was, I've read that book quite early on in my journey and light bulbs just went on in my mind. And even if you don't believe in God or whatever you choose to believe in, you can replace that word with love or universe or whatever, but it just opened my eyes to a whole nother way of being and living. And yeah, I love that book. So I would highly recommend everyone read that book.
1: Ditto. I loved that book. It was also foundational for me. Very cool.
0: Okay. Let's talk about your day now and how your day looks. I love hearing about people's morning routines and their rituals, all of the things that they do to prime themselves for the day. So can you talk us through a quote unquote typical day in your life and if you meditate and you know exercise, all of the little rituals and habits that you do?
1: Okay. Might sound sacrilege. I Meditated for 10 years and then quit and never went back. And I've happily quit meditating. I um, felt like I'd gotten so much value from it, it had stuck. It was like muscle memory and I didn't feel like I was going to go any deeper unless I was going to spend two hours a day meditating, which I was just never going to do. So I'm an ex-meditator sacrilege, but my day looks pretty much like this. I usually wake up at about seven. Uh, First thing I do is I have a whole coffee routine and I'm a bit of a coffee aficionado and I love bringing my wife coffee in bed. It's like, I'm proud of, I make the best coffee in the whole freaking town. So I, uh, I'm very proud of my coffee. And I I present her with this cup of coffee as if to say, this is your like golden chalice. This is the best coffee you're ever going to drink. And uh, I love it. It's my morning ritual. And then we go uh, off and drink coffee on the balcony. We'll chit-chat, spend 15 minutes together chit-chatting. And then my most creative time is early in the morning. So I do a lot of writing early in the morning. So right now I'm writing a new course. So I'm spending four hours from probably eight till midday just flat out writing either at home or at a little restaurant on the beach. The restaurant on the beach is often more distracting, but I can get food without having to make it myself. So that's important. (laughs) I can just write and I sit there and put my headphones on and type on the beach and it's inspiring and it's a beautiful beach. By one o'clock, the wind starts blowing and I'm an avid kite surfer. So I want to be in the water by 1.30 if I can. And so 1.30 to 3.30, I'm usually kite surfing or dirt biking. And uh, we have got we live in this beautiful little town. It's called Cabarete. It's on the north coast of the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean. And what's amazing about this town is that it's the kite surfing capital of the Caribbean. So the wind blows all year round here. And in front of my house, I can just launch a kite and go kite in the afternoon. And behind my house, we have jungle where some of the most amazing dirt biking is. And then evenings, I'm usually pretty quiet. When I was single and dating, I was much more active going out, but now it's am kind of more, you know, chill. I'm also a step-parent to a 20-year-old and a 24-year-old, and we spend time with them. And we travel a lot. I mean, before COVID, we were, we were doing a lot of traveling. We have done a lot less since COVID. But uh, hopefully that's all starting up again. My wife's also an avid motorcyclist, and we travel together on dirt bikes uh, around the world wherever we can are working from the road. So at one point, I had two years of my average day was waking up in a tent in South America, getting on my dirt bike, riding. And then twice a week, we would kind of get a hotel and turn it into an office and I'd take client calls. But five days a week, we'd be riding dirt bikes. That, then COVID hit and that all came crashing to a halt suddenly. But that was a fun time too. I like variety. As long as there's, uh, there's variety, I can stay stimulated. If I was to do the same routine every day, I would, I would struggle probably the biggest routine I have is making coffee.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so nice that you're outside so much. I think that's really beautiful.
1: But in the context, Melissa, just quickly, absolutely. let me just uh, Can I say one last thing to add on to what we're talking about? In the context of daily routines, I think what I would like to add to this conversation is the routines we put in our relationships sustain connection. So For my wife, the 15 minutes I spend with her in the morning bringing her coffee is enough to keep our marriage alive and going. It doesn't have to be hours and hours. It's that special time that's the most important ritual. That's the thing I prioritize. My Marriage is the most important thing in my life. Before my business, before my clients, before the kids, before the kite surfing, before the dirt biking, marriage has to come first, or your relationship has to come first. Because if it doesn't, then your relationship falls apart and that will wreck the rest of your life. It'll wreck your children's lives and nobody will be will be happy. So the little amount of time we ritualize and we prioritize every day, for me, the most important thing to prioritize is our relationship time because that sets the stage for everything. The way I see my relationship is the foundation upon which I am successful in my business. Because if it wasn't for the safety that this relationship provides me, I might not take the risks I take in putting myself out there online, in, you know, maybe throwing 20 grand at Facebook ads. I know that if it all falls apart, my wife's got my back. She'll love me no matter what and I'll be fine. And that inspires me to be a better version of me, knowing that I have the safety net of my relationship. And that's why what I really wanted to highlight was my coffee ritual, because it's not about the coffee. It's about our relationship.
0: Yes. Yeah. In Men Are from Mars, Women Are from Venus. I've had John Gray on the podcast twice, and he talks about the point system. So your husband could be going out and they make a million dollars that day, and they come home and they say, honey, I made a million dollars, and they get one point. But they sit with you and massage your feet for 10 minutes and you get 15 points for that. You know, it's like, it's that, that quality time and finding those things that really light each other up and doing those things. I know for my husband and I, it's taking that time in the morning just to connect, lay in bed and talk or have some time together. It doesn't have to be long. You know, like you said, 15 minutes, even 10 minutes, it doesn't have to be long, but it's that connection that really sustains your relationship.
1: Exactly. We're absolutely on the same page.
0: Okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is one thing that we can do today for our health?
1: Your questions may be rapid fire. I'm not sure my answers are going to be. (laughs) One thing we can do today for our health. Okay. You're talking about the health of our body or our relationship health?
0: Any health, mental health, relationship health, body health, any
1: health. Okay. Touch. Touch soothes the nervous system. Affectionate, loving touch releases oxytocin and bonds you and connects you, calms you down, lowers your heart rate, and reduces stress. Touch each other, hug each other, hold each other, cuddle each other, play footsie under the table, touch.
0: And that doesn't just have to be with your partner. Touch your children, your friends, you know, anyone who wants to be touched. I know my friends and I, my girlfriends and I, we are always hugging and touching each other. It's just such a beautiful thing to do.
1: There's some research that shows that children who are touched regularly live up to 10 years longer than children who aren't.
0: Wow. And I've read that you need, I think it's 11 hugs a day for mental health. So go and get your hugs in. Okay, next one. What is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So, more abundance in all areas of our life?
1: Help more people.
0: Absolutely. And what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? You've got probably a million (laughs) things, but what's one thing that we can start to do today?
1: Appreciate your partner. Go to them and tell them how much you appreciate what they've done for you. But if you want, 10 extra brownie points. Tell them what that says about who they are. So say to them, hey, honey, thank you so much for making the bed this morning. It just, it shows me what a thoughtful, kind and generous person you are. Like acknowledge their traits more than you acknowledge their actions. Traits will get you 10X the return, the the loving returns, and you will melt their hearts.
0: I don't think you can ever tell anyone enough how grateful you are, or I don't think you can ever thank your husband enough for taking out the trash or making the bed. Or, you know, I often tell my husband how amazing a father he is. And then he'll say to me, why? And I list why. I say, you're so, literally last night when we're laying in bed, I just said, you're such an amazing father. And he said, why? I said, you're so patient. You're so kind. And I just listed off all of these things. And that takes Three minutes and it's free. And that is what strengthens your bond.
1: And here's the thing that stops people doing this. I hear this all the time. People saying to me, I'm afraid that if I tell him or her that, it'll go to their head. And then they'll like, Oh, expect- no way. I'm like, You want it to go to their head and to their heart and to every other part of their body. <laughs>
0: totally that has never crossed my mind that that would go to his head like I want to fill him up I want him to feel like the best father in the entire world because I say that I'm like you are the best dad in the entire world I want him with every cell in his entire body to feel that so yeah don't worry about it going to their head you want it to go to every cell in their body Bruce, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing your wisdom with us today. I feel so inspired and ready to take my relationship to the next level. So thank you so much for being here and all of the incredible work that you do in the world. I'm so grateful. I'm so inspired to uncover mine and Nick's broken toes and to share them with each other. And I'm excited to implement everything that we've spoken about in this episode because right now I feel like our relationship needs a little extra love and attention. So implementing everything that we have just spoken about is a great place to start. And uncovering our broken toes and sharing those with each other. I love that concept of the broken toes. I think it's so sweet and it makes it not so serious as well, which I love. Bringing some play and fun to all personal development and growth is key. Now, if you loved today's episode as much as I did, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed like magic so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. Now, please come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me what you got out of this episode. I absolutely love connecting with you. I love hearing from you. So please come and connect with me. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here. For wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, maybe it's your partner, maybe it's a friend or a family member, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, Don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.